0: Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 59. I have some of the verses there on the insert with a small uh, small outline. Please, though, turn in your Bibles uh, and have your Bibles open. Um, You will need to follow along. Uh, We're looking at all the verses of chapter 59 Uh, in your Pew Bible. That's page 618. Now, if you don't have your electronic Bible, your own hard copy Bible, or the Pew Bible on, in your lap, then I'll know you're really zoning out when I'm preaching. I'll know that for sure because this is a passage you have to be engaged in. We're opening the Word. Um, we're, ex- we're committed to expository preaching here at Redeemer, and what that means, it's, it is a bit more challenging both in preparation and in listening, but uh, we believe it's the, the most potent way to receive the preached Word, and that's because we're, what we mean by expository is we are um, exposing, if you will, what the Word's message is what it says. By going through it, uh, we take books and we work through those books um, over a period of time. And uh, really simply, the best way to understand what expository preaching is, the message of the text is the message of the sermon. It's not uh, a matter of a, a topic I pick and then give you Bible verses to back it up or some other version of preaching. Those can be effective if the Word of God and the truth is proclaimed. It's effective. But over the long haul, the best Uh, diet for us would be to just walk through his word and have the truth of it proclaimed. And the connect point for us is to make modern day application to what is revealed. So to do this, we have to understand what was the message as it was given to its original audience and then how does it have a timeless uh, feature to it. Sometimes it's just to set our mind right about God, just to see what he did in, in his history of redemption and then be compelled to worship him. We just, we witness something he does and we are, we are moved to more devotion. That could be the action in and of itself. Oftentimes though, there are timeless principles and that's what we have in the passage before us today. That's often the case with the prophetic literature. Now we're getting to the, to the end of this exposition, if you can imagine. And we're at chapter 59. Chapter 59 is toward the end of Isaiah's life. Isaiah ministered for 50 years. Um, He had a a recurring message. Prophets in Old Testament Israel were sort of like pastors today. They weren't always just predicting the future. They were proclaiming the truth of what God called them to obey, and God would give them special insight, not a kind of insight that was relegated to prophets and apostles, not modern-day pastors, Uh, but the prophets would speak to the people of God, often calling them back to devotion to God, uh, to trust in Him, to turn from their sin. Um, In Old Testament times, they also had priests, the priests were like the interceders for the people uh, in the temple with the sacrificial system that looked forward to Jesus fulfilling the sacrifices. There were also kings. Um, in that administration of God's people, it was a nation. and The nations had a civil leader who was a king. It was supposed to be devoted to Jehovah as well. So there were kings, there were priests, and there were prophets. And here's the prophet Isaiah toward the end of his ministry trying to call the people back, the king back, even the priesthood back, obey God and his word, but the people at large had turned from God. Not everybody. There's a remnant always within Israel that do believe in God's salvation. They confess their sinners, and they trust in the Messiah to come, but the nation on the whole had turned and became um, characterized by terrible sin, and so the prophet Isaiah, towards the end of his life now, he ends up being executed by one of the kings of Israel before Babylon takes over. We're coming to the twilight now, And he's calling desperately again to the people, and he's even putting himself with the people in a way we have not seen him do before, calling himself a sinner as well, in need of God's salvation. We'll see how this relates to Christians of all ages, of all times, but we'll also see how it looks forward to a time that's still yet to come, when the fullness of Jesus' coming is realized in the new heavens and the new earth. Here, as I read, I will start just reading the first four verses. And then I'll skip down to verse 20 and 21 to show what the situation was and what God promises. But again, have your Bibles open so we can look at all the verses of chapter 59 together. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Now down to verse 20. And the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we see um, the promise you made to Abraham echo in the words of Isaiah to the people who had turned from you. Uh, Lord, we lay hold of the promise that you made to Abraham also only now through Christ. Lord, you had prophets and you had priests and you had kings in these days and all of them in one way or another failed. but you have sent Christ the final prophet the final priest and our king. Lord, I pray that you would give us receptive, soft humble hearts so that we might not be hidden from your hand of grace as we see occurring with your people in this passage. Lord, to the degree that there is sin that we are not confessing, I pray that you would give us humility. Give us repentance that we might confess the sin and rest fully again in the finished work of Christ. I pray, Lord, for transparency for us that we might not hide any sin from you. As we know, that is impossible anyways. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want you to see the situation here at the beginning of chapter 59. We already know from chapter 58 there was a lot of fakery going on about the devotion that they said they had for God. Um, Their worship was fake. Um, They weren't caring for other people. They weren't taking a day to rest and reflect. We know this to be true of them already on the whole. Um, Now he's speaking in general terms. This could have been a message that happened you know, a year or two after whatever happened in chapter 58. This is an annal of all that Isaiah said over the course of a 50-year ministry. But we come to the situation, and we discover that God has not um, given close fellowship to them. He has not given them blessings like he has in the past. Um, They lack a sense of their belonging to him. It's not that they don't belong to him, but they're lacking the sense of fellowship, and there's good reason for it. And he wants to remind them, he could save at any time, He could bless at any time. He could relieve them of their distress at any time. But notice what stops it. Verse one says, "Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. It cannot say that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear." So they're under distress. They're under pressure. But he's saying, he hasn't lost any ability. That's not the problem. Verse two says what the problem is. "But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is describing a broken fellowship between God and his people because of their sin. Um, Their sin has muddled up the relationship. Uh, Their sin has caused them uh, to lack the sense of belonging that they could have if they were walking with their Lord. Now, we will see in this time frame in the life of the people of God, there is a certain hopelessness to this apart from God acting to save. And that's always true. But there is an adoption that we enjoy now that can still have a similar dynamic, but it's different because of what God has poured out on us through his Son and by his Spirit, which is forecasted in, in the last verse of our text today. But we're looking at all of chapter 59 to gather what message there was for the people of God and for us today. And what we see ultimately is there is a person who may be called the Anointed One, as we have been introduced to the Messiah through Isaiah. For the Lord's Spirit is upon him, through whom our relationship with the Lord is eternally secure. They had to look to the Messiah for the forgiveness of their sins. We look back at the Messiah for the forgiveness of our sins and look to him. In an ongoing way, as he reveals his will to us through his word by his spirit. Now, this passage breaks down very simply. The first few verses um, lay out the charges. We've seen this structure before in Isaiah's writing. Um, They're condemned for the the outright sin and rebellion they were living in. Uh, Then the middle section is uh, kind of remarkable because it's Isaiah speaking for the people of God, saying, We confess that what you have said is right. Um, We are sorry. And we even spell out what this has meant for us. It has caused us nothing but heartache. And Isaiah speaks for the people, at least for some of the people. And so there's a contrite confession in the middle section. And then the last verses introduce what is called the, the elements of the new covenant to come. The renewed covenant that God will bring through his perfect prophet, priest, and king, Christ. And it's, it's spelled out more in Jeremiah, more in Ezekiel still. But here we see an introduction anyways to what is to come for all believers, and it's glorious. When you think of uh, this passage uh, about the condemnation that's listed, um, you'll see everything displayed here. There's nothing that even the people of God are not guilty of. Look at verse 2 as we see this condemnation laid out as the Lord lines out the ethical state of God's people. Uh, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Uh, Why is God doing this to his people? Well, his people are not listening. They're not understanding. They're not recognizing what it has caused. Um, I know of a friend who uh, had uh, a child who went away to college and got hooked on drugs when they were at college, several different drugs. Um, The school had to expel him. He went back to live with his parents, and his parents were trying to help him break his addiction but he kept lying to them. He would steal money from them, steal stuff and sell it, and he would keep buying himself more and more drugs. Eventually, they had no choice. For his own good, they had to put him out of the house. Now, they did not stop loving him. They did not stop being his parent. But they had to turn their face from him in some respects, or he caused a breach in the relationship because of his conduct, because of what he did. And eventually, that action caused him to really hit rock bottom at a certain point and then come back to them and come back to the Lord first. Um, So God, in a way, does this with his people at times, and he does this here. Um, Their sins had hidden his face from them so that he did not hear. Now, if you look at the enumerating of the different iniquities, it's pretty exhaustive. Verse 3 tells us they were guilty of sins by their hands and by their words. Verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. So these are things they were doing that were violent. Uh, They were uh, murderous acts. Uh, But their lips have spoken lies. So they were lying with their words and their deeds. Uh, Their tongue muttered wickedness, lying speech, wicked talk, evil deeds. This is what characterized people who were supposed to be known as the people of God. And he's calling them out on this. This is why they are going into captivity. This is why they were under duress. More explanation. Verse 4. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. So now the culture itself, the society itself was broken. They were acting uh, treacherously towards each other, word and deed, but even their systems in place that should have provided justice or a way to deal with sin or murder or wickedness, that was corrupted too. Verse 4 again, No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief, and give birth to iniquity. Uh, there are many, for as bad the system, the, as the system may seem to us in America, it's nothing. Uh, and so the corruption here is nothing like it is in so many other places in the world. When you talk to folks that live in other countries, um, bribes are the way of things. They wouldn't even think of going to the court for any kind of justice, there's just none of it there. And that's what's being described here among the people of God dishonesty and corruption in the legal system. In in a a picture that is vivid for every one of us, spiders and snakes. How many people love spiders and snakes? How many like to have snakes and spiders in their homes? Right, exactly. That's the picture that's painted here. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. This is a descriptor for how they were dealing with each other. They hatch adders' eggs, they weave the spider's web. An adder is a viper, a poisonous snake. They hatch vipers' or poisonous snakes' eggs. They weave spider's web. Now, why is this the case? Uh, he who eats their eggs, those, those viper's eggs, dies for obvious reasons. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. So what he's saying is people are giving eggs, because the eggs uh, of certain snakes can look like bird's eggs. And so they're giving you an egg, like you're getting something that's going to help you. But when you crush it or open it up, vipers come out and bite you. Uh, So they're not only giving you something useless, they're giving something that appears useful but will harm you. That's how bad things were between each other in this time. Regarding the spider and the web, the web uh, would look like the same kind of silk they would use um, to weave things, uh, to make useful garments. But these are spiders' webs. Uh, These are not webs that will actually serve as clothing. Verse 6, the first part says that. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. So if you make stuff out of these spider webs, there might be spiders in it, so it's treacherous, and it won't help you or protect you or do the thing it's meant to do. Total dishonesty, total treachery towards each other just in the way they're dealing with each other. It's a terrible picture painted of what society was like. And it gets worse. It gets awful quickly. The second part of verse 6. Their works are works of iniquity. And deeds of violence are in their hands. These these words resonate with us, especially after a violent week in our country. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Deeds of violence. Now we saw that vividly on the television set in Las Vegas. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. But, but if we're honest, and I know there are way worse places in the world, so don't, don't misunderstand what I am saying or suggesting. But the things you see on television that are the big presenting issues, um, they are people running to evil and swift to shed innocent blood. But it comes from an underlying overall bloodthirstiness among people. Apart from God's grace, we'd all be there but especially in the culture in which we live. We see it in the culture here in Israel. Uh, You have these outward things like these mass shootings, these bombings, wicked people driving cars over bystanders, you name it. Happens right in our own country. A bloodthirsty time. We live in a time and in a land where life is devalued. We see it here in Israel. We recognize that in other parts of the world and we see it here today. I know of a person um, who uh, works at an ER and would talk about uh, car accidents that would come in, and this is a, a problem that's not, not atypical. A person would come in, and they would have a broken arm, a, severe, uh, a severe, severe head injury, all these outward injuries that could be noted, and they would get immediately addressed. But a person would often have an internal injury that you couldn't see, and they would bleed out from the inside while they're addressing these outward ones. There's a sense in which, when you think of even our own culture, which is not the church, but our own culture, to recognize God's judgment upon it, perhaps... Um, that we have a bloodthirstiness. We have been okay with killing a million babies a year for a long time, and that's internal bleeding. The externals we run to, like the mass shootings, and we should, but recognize what maybe perpetuates this wickedness we see outwardly in all these signs could be that inward bleeding that we just overlook. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. No wonder, when we see the second part of verse 7... Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. Um, This this is what happens when we're internally sick. Um, It it works its way out, and it it pervades everything. Verse 8, the way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths, and they have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. So they, they, they... God speaking through the prophets, speaking of they, the people of God, and God is coming down upon them. Now, the culture at that time was more and more integrated because the people of God, you remember, were looking more and more like the world around them. So these are general condemnations, but specific to the people of God who have the capacity, because of God's grace, to repent. This message goes forth. But it's also painting a terrible picture about humanity, the truth about humanity. Um, What you'll see in most uh, outlets today is how people are generally good. That is such a lie. I mean, who sees any of this that we see in our world and thinks it's good? But who has a toddler that thinks people are good? Did you teach your child to lie? When did they learn how to lie? No, they're born in iniquity, and so they know how to lie. And unless God's grace touches any of us, we go down the road that's depicted here. Oswald, who does a commentary on this passage, said This passage is one of the more poignant statements of human sinfulness and fallibility in the entire Bible. In fact, Paul, when he speaks of the fallenness and the depravity of mankind as their their natural state, he quotes from Isaiah. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. None are righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, or snakes, is under their lips. Their their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And then listen to the quote from Isaiah 59. Paul writes, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. So this condemnation of the way the people were acting is general too. We see it throughout humanity. And there really is only one escape from this. And that's what we find, starting in verse 9, is a contrite confession. There is an ownership of these sins. There's not an excuse for them. It's not saying, boy, other people are worse than us. It's not saying, I didn't do this, or I, some of that's true, some of it's not. None of that happens. Isaiah steps up and now changes the, what person has spoken. And you'll see this here, verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us, Isaiah writes. He moves from condemnation to a shared confession that he leads the people in. Isaiah writing in chapter, and verse 9, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. In other words, we're overtaken by wickedness, by, not by God's righteousness. And there is no justice. This is true, he's saying. He's confirming what has been revealed. We hope for light and behold darkness. Remember their fake worship, trying to do things to get God to do things for them, to leverage God? Again, verse 9, we hope for light and behold darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. Now, he's not saying it's God's fault that they walk in gloom. In fact, it's clear that he's taking ownership. Verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Uh, We're in the noon. It should be the brightest time, but it's like twilight. We can't see. Our eyes won't adjust. We cannot see. We don't have spiritual vision. We can't have the perspective we need to have. We are lost, God. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. You know, you can picture today with all the zombie movies and zombie shows what zombies are. That, that's really what we are apart from God's grace applied to us. We're, just, we're, just, we're in full vigor, but we're like dead men. We can't see anything. We just stumble around. That's us apart from the grace of God shown to us, apart from his redemption. And this is a beautiful confession. Uh, the, it's declared by God what the problem is. And what reveals that God is working is that we recognize he's true, it's true. And I don't think everybody else is to blame. I think what is to blame is myself. Us, that's the problem. Describes in animalistic terms what we are like in this state. Verse 11, we all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. Hunger drives bears to growl. People know this today and in antiquity. And that's what we're like, Isaiah says. We're lost because of our sin and we are hungry for something and we can't find the food that will satisfy. We moan and moan like doves, same thing. We hope for justice, verse 11, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. It's an utter declaration that, yes, what you said is true, and its causes gloom and doom, and we can do nothing to help ourselves out of this. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what God wants us to say. That's what he wants us to profess. And so when you have sin brought up to you personally, whatever it may be, whatever your thing is, don't condemn whoever it is that tells it to you. Maybe they don't say it right. I don't know. We're not great at that delivery, are we, oftentimes? But maybe somebody's coming to you with a real concern that could really be a, a, a sinful thing that's causing you great pain and great gloom. The right response is to own that. Yes, that is. That is, in fact, true. And in so doing, you're also at the same time turning from it by saying, Lord, I don't want this. And you're turning to him. That's that's exactly what he's driving us towards when we read these kinds of passages. When we see what he's calling his people to do, that's what we're to do individually as a church, as the people of God. Opportunity to own the truth of our transgressions. Verse twelve: For our transgressions are multiplied before you, not only the ones you mentioned, Lord, but they're more than that, and you know it. Isn't that true? There's times when we have a sin called, uh, we're called out on a sin. Maybe someone doesn't tell us. We just know. And then we start to justify, well, I didn't really do all that, but come on, let's be honest, we did 15 other things we're not talking about. That's the point, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. You know, we stop and pause, and we stop to think, we know it's true. We don't know what to do, we can't do anything to get rid of them, but we admit it. Contrite confession is the right response to condemnation. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. There's no way you can have justice, there's no way you can have fairness without this. And this is something we have to understand. We should, at all turns, strive against injustices in the world, people when they're oppressed. But at the same time, we've got to recognize that you you can't see those things rectified without people being redeemed personally. Uh, that, that has to be the first reality. The, the liberation from sin, death, hell, and the grave that only Christ can give is the beginning for seeing it, outworked, it worked out in people's lives and relationships. It doesn't work the other way around. You don't free somebody from their outward oppression uh, as a way to be saved. You must be saved in order to see ways in which justice can be applied. It has to be done through the power of God and the Spirit, through his people who are transformed justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. Isn't that the truth? I mean, as truth stumbles in the public squares, justice wanes. The reason there's no justice is there's no truth. And uprightness cannot enter. Verse 15, truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So with all of this, if you actually try to depart from evil, it says in verse 15, you make yourself prey. Do you see what it's saying? The person who actually tries to stand up in this system gets shot down. That's how bad it's gotten. The Lord saw it. The Lord sees this, and it displeases him that there was no justice. You know, brothers and sisters, what happens here is always the case. Whenever there is renewal, revival, or reformation, it starts with confession of sin. No excuses. Ownership for what has been revealed and what we know to be true We confess this, Lord, and we don't want it anymore. But we can't take it away from ourselves. That's what it means to turn from your transgressions, by the way. It doesn't mean quit them. It means turn from them to God. You can't quit them unless you turn to the one who can quit them for you, who has quit them for you, paid for them, and then gives you power now to live against that. This is where we come uh, to the climactic point of this chapter, which leads into another theme that launches into chapter 60. This is this picture of what God ultimately will do as he renews covenant through his son in the new covenant. Um, Redemption. Redemption is applied eventually. Here it's forecasted. We've seen it applied or accomplished on the cross and applied all the time now as people come to Christ. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. it says in verse 1, that it cannot save. In other words, he can save. How does he save? Well, verse 16, he looks at the situation. He hears the confession of the people through Isaiah. In verse 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So nobody can get themselves out of the situation as the Lord looks at this. He's speaking as uh, anthropomorphically in the sense of as, as a person watching something. God sees there's nobody that can get themselves out of this dilemma. So what does he do? He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He responds to the fact that we have brought ourselves to this place and we have enemies rising up against us and they're crushing and oppressing us, oppressing us. but now he sees that they've confessed, that they've owned their sin, and so he gets ready to go to war for us. That's what he's saying. No hope from within sinful mankind to reverse this curse. No one to lead them from their awful state. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate, God speaking of himself here and a, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. It, it mirrors the same language Paul uses when telling a believer to put on the full armor of God. This is the armor God puts on to go to war for us. This is how determined God was to redeem his people. Verse 18, according to their deeds so he will repay, speaking of the enemies of, of God's people now, his enemies, Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. Now he's talking bigger. Remember, when the prophets speak, they don't necessarily know when exactly things will be fulfilled. They're just speaking the truth God reveals. Sometimes things they say will happen within 50 years. Some things may take 150, 200 years. Some things uh, might take 1,000 years or more. We don't know for sure. So sometimes it's difficult to to line up all the future promises and know where they, they come. Some of them we know because Christ has come and fulfilled so many of them. But there's a prediction that the prophets have, this messianic consciousness they have, that a Messiah will come, and when the Messiah comes, many other things will unfold over time. And that's what he looks forward to in his coming. They shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, verse 19, and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And these final two verses give an announcement, an announcement, a gracious announcement. Verse 20, And a Redeemer will come to Zion. This is a verse that's quoted by Paul in Romans 11, speaking of Messiah. And a Redeemer will come to Zion. And, and who will this benefit? Next, the next sentence. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression. We read about what repentance is. It's turning from sin unto Christ. Uh, that's what this says. And a Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgressions. To who? The Redeemer that God sends, declares the Lord. The Redeemer comes to save the repentant. Verse 21 speaks of this restored people. This is looking forward to the time when Jesus comes by God's Spirit and does the work of redemption and then um, over the course of time calls people to himself, the time in which we still live. Verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. So he's using covenant language, which would connect people immediately to the most important covenant to the Jewish people, which wasn't the Mosaic one. That was an important one. It gave identity, it gave definite. There's lots about it that's important. But that covenant had a temporary feature to it. The covenant he's drawing them back to is the promise to be their God. He would be their God and they would be his people. The promise to Abraham. This is the baseline covenant of the Old Testament. It's the one when Jesus says, uh, this is the new covenant in my blood. He doesn't mean brand new. He means this is fulfilled, the Abrahamic covenant. It's new compared to the Mosaic covenant for sure because now he writes his law on our hearts instead of on the stone tablets. But the Abrahamic covenant is the, the renewal that's going on here. And for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. For out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And there's a mixture here about him talking about his, his Redeemer who's coming, coming to Zion, but also his people united to the Redeemer. We don't know all this very clearly here. We see it as it unfolds. We also can draw the connection to the kind of language he used with Abraham. Remember when he talked to Abraham and he told Abraham uh, to go from your country, from your kindred's house in, in Genesis 12? to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. In all, and in you, all the families of earth will be blessed. So there's a picture of what would happen through Abraham and his people, but his people would fail in their obedience. But God would not fail in his covenant promises. He tells Uh, Abraham several different times, and then in Genesis 17, he says, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Point is, this is the baseline covenant that God is seeking to fulfill, and when the people of Israel do not keep their part of the obedience, he raises Christ, the only perfect Jew to ever live who follows perfectly God's covenant stipulations, and he through him, we have salvation. and so he promises the people of Isaiah who would by the Mosaic covenant, have clearly sinned against God and walked away from him with this unfaithfulness, He raises again. The prospect of the Redeemer to come to Zion. The Redeemer who has come, who we trust in. Who is the perfect priest, prophet, and king. The anointed one himself, Messiah. This is the beautiful picture. 700 years before Jesus was born, this is written. Then Jesus comes and fulfills it, and he still at this point is calling the nations to himself. As we speak. I love what Kyle and Dalich say to describe this passage The church of the new covenant has the spirit of God over it, for it comes down upon it from above, and the comforting, saving word of God are not only the blessed treasure of its heart, but the confession of its mouth, which spreads salvation all around. The words intended are those which prove the seeds of the new heaven and the new earth. The church of the last days, endowed with the spirit of God and never again forsaking its calling, carries them as carries them as the evangelist of God in her apostolic mouth. The subject of the following prophecy is the new Jerusalem, the glorious center of this holy church. You know, for all the complexity of, of such an involved prophetic passage, there is a real simplicity here that I think we can all see. God reveals human sinfulness in all its ugliness. Isaiah, representing the people, confesses the truth of God's accusations and then takes responsibility for their wickedness. God promises redemption for those who confess and repent and turn unto him. This passage lists their guilt in just about every category of sin you can imagine. Yet you never ever hear God say that he is unable to save them from it. In fact, he says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. He can save. He can hear. There is a Redeemer who will come to Zion, who has come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Let us bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, you know us uh, intimately, and we cannot hide our sins from you. May the hearing of your word again today jar us from any uh, covering up of sin that we are trying to do personally or collectively. Please give us contrition and confession so that we may receive your grace afresh this day. Pray this through Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Let's be prepared for participating in the Lord's Supper by turning in our hymnals to 253 as the elders come to prepare the table. We'll sing verses 1 through 3 of There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Let's stand as we sing.